as we really get into multiplication of churches, multiplication of micro churches, all the things that are kind of front burner issues today, uh, we really need to think about making disciples who multiply churches and teaching those disciples to submit to Jesus. The Lordship of Christ is actually the hub of everything here. You know, we've talked so much about church planting, and now we're talking about church multiplication. Now we're into microchurch. Then we realize that you can't do any of that if you don't make disciples, but you really can't make disciples if you don't teach people to surrender to Jesus. And so I want to talk a little bit here in this session about the Hope Chapel story, what we did, uh, how it worked, why I think it worked, and we'll just go on from there. The truth is, just so you know, we started by accident. Uh, we had a lot of thoughts, a lot of ambition, a lot of aspiration about planting churches, but we really didn't know how to go about it. And then a uh, small group of people lived long distance from the church. We had Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night church in those days. They had a hard time coming back to the evening services because of their children. There are actually three families in this situation. And so they asked, could we send them, one of our members down there to one of their homes to lead Sunday night church for them. We did that. Uh, two and a half months later, they decided they want to become their own church. Um, I get into this a lot in the book, Let Go of the Ring, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. But what I really want to say to you is I'm not that smart. And that this whole thing really got started by accident. And we became opportunistic in that our denomination had a bunch of failed churches running around and uh, they'd call us up every time that they had an empty church building or a near empty church building, uh, which is actually a sucker bet. We wouldn't accept a near empty church building after a couple of bad experiences because a near empty church usually means there's a bunch of cranky old people who want to fight the new pastor. So we kind of said no to that. But if they had an empty building, they'd call us and say, do you have someone that could take this church over? Well, we were a disciple-making machine, not a church-planting machine, a disciple-making machine. So we always had somebody who knew how to make disciples, and so we would say yes. And so that's how we really got our start, probably out of the first dozen churches or so, uh, six or seven of them were, you know, people coming to us asking for help. And then I need to point out that this whole thing grew in fits and starts. There's no smooth curve to church multiplication. Uh, you really can't find anybody. I see guys that are uh, programming themselves and, you know, they, they, they set out a, you know, strategic plan and we're going to do this many per year, per year, per year, which is really good, but that's going to probably end up in level four because you have that kind of control. If you want to let it get to level five, where it becomes a multiplication movement, you have to surrender the kind of control that helps you to do those kinds of things. Uh, the next thing is that we never built a brand uh, we really didn't care if you used our name or not. In fact, in the beginning, the first daughter church, they wanted to call themselves Branch of Hope, which they ended up doing. Uh, we were fearful that people would think we're trying to start a Hope Chapel or a Hope something denomination. And so we really never got into this whole business of branding. And, you know, we were the launch large group. Um, Got to say that we were not into microchurch in the beginning at all. In fact, we never were in the time I was a pastor. Uh, we're beginning to, to think that way now. But um, so we didn't build a brand. The results that have come of all this are at least 23, 2400 churches. We actually know of 2400 churches and we're on every continent, including we for a little while had a church going, a micro church in Antarctica. I want to talk a little bit about what we see as four keys to our multiplication success, if you would. 
Uh, first is an easily reproducible model. And by this, I mean something that's inexpensive, can go anywhere. Uh, it really comes down to three questions that we ask around whatever material that we're talking about, whether it's a weekend teaching or a book that we're reading. Um, you, can, you can do this in New York City. You can do this in, you know, uh, in a mud hut church in Kenya. I know because we're doing it and we're reproducing there. Uh, the second thing is hands-on training. We're teaching people to lead by involving them in leadership rather than you take a class you take the class later you learn to lead first and then we'll qualify you for the class there's a continuing example and that's me if you're trying to raise up disciples who make disciples you better be making disciples yourself and don't tell me i delegate this to a staff member because that just isn't going to work you know, the larger the church, the more often the pastor will say, I don't have time for making disciples. I delegate that to a staff member. Those churches seldom reproduce, let alone multiply. And there's a really good reason for that. And then the fourth thing that was a key for us was that we were always championing vision. We, we through the hero making thing, you know, whoever's doing this and doing it well, we're up talking about them and we're writing about them. We're we're creating events that we can format what they're doing. I write books more for the people that I've discipled and sent out than I do for even you. And, uh, and then, of course, email came along, white papers. And today uh, we have Zoom. I didn't have Zoom when I was a pastor. Unfortunately, I, I would really be making some hay if I had Zoom. So let's just talk a little bit about the guts of Hope Chapel. This is what we think is the heart and soul of everything. This is what helped us to succeed. I go a lot of places where I'm told you can be descriptive, but you can't be prescriptive. In other words, you can tell about what happened, but you can't tell this is how to do it. Well, I'm here to tell you this is how to do it. This worked. And no matter who you are or what kind of resources you have, this will work for you. And so the first thing that is absolutely crucial is that you would lay a foundation through teaching more than through preaching. I want my Sunday morning, whatever that is, we did seven services a weekend, some were Friday, some were Saturday, some were Sunday morning, some were Sunday night, but I want it to come across as kind of Bible college light. In other words, we're going to take you through the Bible chapter by chapter. You're going to know scripture. We're going to make it fun. We're going to make it funny. We're going to make heroes out of the people. I like to try to start, if I can, with a parable. Usually the parable is sitting right there in church, and I'm telling this person did this this week. Isn't this wonderful? And it links to the scripture in this way. And so we're vertically aligning. We're putting everything together, 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 together. And, but the key to this whole thing, and if you're looking at the graphic, is the, the, the circle in the middle of the graphic is the person talking, the lead pastor, whatever. The little triangles are the people who are going to be leading the micro churches within the congregation. The little squares that you see in this thing, the light squares are, say, fairly immature believers. Uh, the darker squares are disciples who are making disciples. And so, but, but the foundation of everything is what's coming across the pulpit. And if you're not teaching the right stuff across the pulpit, you got to back up and think again. You know, every so often, I would take people about every six or seven years, I take the whole congregation through Luke and Acts as one big continuum. We're learning how to do church here, and we're learning how to do it right, and we're fine-tuning ourselves, and we're going from there. Our churches look much like any other church. You, you know, you, you go to the auditorium, it's a tent, by the way. It's just, you know, looks like a, you know, mega church. 
uh, that's what we were, a small mega church. Uh, one of my friends, Ed Stetzer, said recently he was surprised that another friend, Wayne Cordero, told him, if you went to Hope Chapel Kaneohe, you it would just look like any big church that you ever saw in the land. Uh, it would, except for we had a small uh, tent, 400 people it would hold. We'd have to do it a lot of times. But on the weekend, we looked like everybody else. We worked our brains out to get people to hang around after church and eat food and talk together because that's kind of where the fellowship experience gets really rich. The second thing that we did that is, is really core, these two things juxtaposed are the real guts of everything. And that's that we would disciple the members around what they heard on the weekend in the sermon. We'd start out with food and fellowship for 20, 25 minutes, just you know, hanging out together. A lot of times that comes into, hey, we prayed for you last week, or I got you this appointment for this job. I did this to help you. What happened as a result of it? And so uh, this, it became kind of a testimony time, but very, very informally. And then we would ask people, go around the ring and just tell us two words that you can remember from what you heard on the weekend. And if you didn't go to church, you didn't hear the message, you didn't hear it online, then we're asking you don't talk for 20 minutes. And then you can kind of pick up off of whatever everybody else is saying. But uh, the first question is just, what did you hear? But that's not the important questions. These three questions are the core of our disciple making model. <clears throat> what did you hear from the Holy Spirit while the person was talking up front? Not did, what did they say? What did the Holy Spirit speak to your heart? Because now we're teaching people to listen to the Spirit, listen to God. And then we move into obedience with the second question. What will you do because of what the Spirit told to you? Now, Here's what we're finding is that people will hold themselves accountable if they declare themselves in front of a bunch of other people. But more than that, we're teaching people, hear the Spirit and obey the Spirit, learning to obey God. We're dealing with the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And then the next question is, how can we help you or how can we pray for you? What can we do to bless you along the way? And, and at this point, we begin to see spiritual gifts emerge from the group. And this is very, very powerful. You know, we've done spiritual gift surveys and all those tests and all those things to not much effect. But as soon as we started asking these three questions, the third question just drew people out and they began to experience their own spiritual gifts. We function different than other churches. Uh, we look like other churches, but we certainly function different than other churches. I put a picture uh, in, in the slide presentation of the people that were in my last microchurch that we did inside of our church. And by the way, it was 25 miles away from the location where we worshiped on Sunday. The person, if you're looking at the slide on, on your left, is an IT expert. He moved to Japan with the intent of being a missionary to Japan, a freelance missionary. He's paid by the company that hires him to do IT. Uh, next to him is his former girlfriend, Actually, they, they broke up after a mission trip to Japan. They just decided they weren't right for each other. She ran a lot of our children's church for many, many years. She came to the church because of him, but she stuck it out and, and did incredible things. Uh, next to her is a guy named Earl Nakagawa. He's an eye doctor. Uh, we were sending teams uh, for about 10, 12 years. We would send somebody every year, but every other year, we'd send about 22, 23 people into Kenya and they'd come back and say, we had 700, we had 800 converts. They'd put 2,200, 2,400, 2,500 pairs of eyeglasses on people. Our whole church got involved in this. We'd go across the island, go to up, 
optometrists and ask, did people give you their old glasses, which they often do, and the guy doesn't know what to do with them, so he just throws them in a bucket. And we would collect those. So we came with a lot of prescription glasses. We had a machine that could, you know, tell us what the prescription was. So we knew how to give it to the right person after they did the eye tests in Kenya. And, uh, and then we just go buy those readers and, you know, $2 and some lady who, you know, she's, she's just getting farsighted because she's getting older and she's never been able to really focus on the face of her granddaughter. And she's 40 years old. And we put a $2 pair of glasses on her and she can read her Bible again. She can see the face of the granddaughter. Incredible things happen through this ministry. But the most incredible is that ordinary people from our church were running this thing. I never went near the place. They taught a pastor there how to use what I'm teaching you right now to uh, raise up leadership and to multiply churches. And he did it very well. And I think they got eight churches going. They started in a mud hut and they're basically meeting in mud huts, but they're doing an incredible thing. It's, it's changing the face of the people that are there. Uh, next to that man is a guy in a white shirt. He's a building contractor, was with us for a little while, but not real long. And so I don't even remember his name. Uh, the couple next to them, uh, they came from New Hope Church that was passed by Wayne Cordero. They weren't doing this kind of thing, so they were hungry for it. So they came to our church, and uh, we would do the same model. We'd ask the same questions from the sermon that they heard on the weekend, and that worked out very well. And then the couple on your right, um, he's really a very close friend of mine, and he has been in every federal penitentiary in California when he used to be a drug dealer. He started out playing football. He was hot shot in high school. He found out that if he got arrested for drinking, the cops would let him go because what he could do on the football field. If he uh, was, you know, needed drugs uh, for pain, the doctors would give him whatever he asked for. Pretty soon he's asking for things he doesn't really need and they're still giving it to him. Uh, he gets a scholarship to a major, major university. He's on his way to the NFL. He's being scouted in high school. He blows the whole thing up with drugs, ends up dealing drugs. Um, when I met him, he had just come out of prison, was involved in our church, had gotten his girlfriend in jail because she got caught for possession of some of his drugs. And she was never going to talk to him again and all that. That's her sitting next to him. Uh, what happened was that somebody asked him to go to the juvenile delinquent hall, the, the Kailua Boys Home in, in Oahu, and just tell his story. And so he went there and kind of preached the gospel and He'd meet people on the street afterwards saying, thank you for that speech you gave. It changed my life. Pretty powerful stuff. But he's waiting for the bus to get back home because he's pretty well broke and whatever. She comes driving by, sees him, has vowed never to talk to him again, but picked him up, gave him a ride back to where he lived. She ends up coming to our church, coming to our mini church. It's there. She really gave herself over to the Lord and they're married today and they're really good friends. And I'm really proud of that. But as we get into this a little bit further, we would disciple leaders. The way that we generated leaders was we're making disciples in these micro churches, but you have apprentice leaders if you're the leader of the micro church. And uh, your goal is to grow the thing and then grow your leaders and then hand off to one of those people and go start a new group. Take the weakest leader you have with you and start all over instantly. They're the strongest leader that you have and you're discipling them. You're continually doing this. Anybody who is an apprentice leader in the microchurch system is now qualified to come to our leadership training. We kind of flipped it on its head. We don't recruit people through leadership training. We recruit people relationally and, and by making disciples. 
and then we train them afterwards. That worked out very well for us. And so we would disciple leaders around books and around their experience. And uh, basically, it was the same three questions, although we modified it just a bit. And the questions were, what did you hear from the Holy Spirit while you're reading this book? And it might have been a secular book, but the Holy Spirit still speaks. How will that impact your ministry? In other words, what are you going to do? What did you hear? What are you going to do? So hearing from God, learning to obey God. And then the last question was a little bit different. And that was, uh, how will this impact your ministry? What is going to change in your ministry because of this? And here's some of the books that we read together. Uh, there's, there's a book called... Um, uh, the, the 20th century in bite-sized chunks. There's my book, Let Go of the Ring, which is an expansion of what I'm teaching you in this session. If you really want to understand Hope Chapel, you might want to look at that book. And by the way, we've just come out with a group study version, which is a lot less expensive. You can find those on Amazon if you want to use that as a discipling tool. The book Generations, written in 1982, uh, is kind of a history of spiritual awakenings in America. The authors are not Christians, but the history of America is a very Christian thing. And they pretty much predicted in 1982 what we're going through right now, as I'm talking in 2021, um, the whole deal with millennials and how they'll behave and all that, uh, based upon uh, the history of generations past in America. About every four generations were on this cycle. Um, there's a book called Never Surrender that's about Winston Churchill. And if you don't know about Winston Churchill, you're not really in leadership. The Forgotten Ways by Alan Hirsch, which has really revived Ephesians 4 in the church. We'd gone through this time where there are no apostles in modern days and all that. And Alan brought us back to reality. That's a wonderful thing. Uh, there's a book that we never did use in Hope Chapel, but I'm recommending called uh, Becoming C.S. Lewis. And it's about how young C.S. Lewis, the agnostic and then atheist, eventually became the person that we all know and love and respect. And then the next thing that we did well in terms of the pattern here and the graphic that I'm putting out is that the lead pastor and the elders send and coach reproducing leaders as church planters. In other words, if you have planted three or four microchurches in succession, we have a little talk. And a talk is, have you ever thought of planting a church? Now, when I was pastoring, we were looking for mid-sized churches. We're looking to send 150, 170 people out with every church plant. In fact, uh, four different times we've given away 20% of our people on one Sunday. One time we gave away 25% of our people to two church plants on the same day. Um, we didn't plant churches at a real rapid clip. We did about a church and, and a half a year. Uh, if you look at it over the decades, uh, but we had built this system into those people. And so a lot of those guys went on and, and multiplied and then their disciples multiplied and their disciples multiplied. And to truth be told, there were some guys that were one and done. And, you know, that's just going to happen. You're going to do the best you can and, and, and you take the results you get. And so um, we would send people and then they would send people. And this is a picture of the church in Kenya. Actually, not the church. This is leaders of the churches in Kenya uh, gathered together for a little convention or whatever it was that they did. Uh, so what I'm telling you is going to work in a big city in America. Honolulu is the 11th largest city in the country. And it's going to work in a village in Kisumu, Kenya. 
And so I just want to go over the three questions again to make sure that you get them. The first one is, what did the Holy Spirit speak to you while the pastor was talking? Or what did the Holy Spirit speak to you while you were reading this book? Uh, secondly, what will you do because of what the Holy Spirit said to you? Because now we're dealing with lordship and obedience. We're hearing God. We're talking about obeying God. And then how can we help you or pray for you? And we're getting into the business of spiritual gifts and people helping one another. I want to go very, very quickly through what I would call multiplication levers. We might want to do this in another session. But the first thing that we think was really important is a low threshold into leadership. Uh, there, there has to be biblical standards of character, but there do not have to be some educational level met. And most of our pastors were trained inside the church. They went to seminary. They went afterwards. We made them into a pastor. The seminary kind of refined their education. To qualify as a leader, you got to already have followers. In fact, we're not going to invite you to be an apprentice in a micro church if we don't see people who are already following you in your day-to-day -day life. I don't believe you can make leaders. I believe you can train people who are already leadership and you can refine their skills, but I don't think that you can make a leader by sending them to a class. Uh, we had no central government over the churches that we planted. We had a central government in our church. We could have done a much better job of networking our churches. Had I known Zoom in those days, we'd be doing webinars and stuff like that. There would be a communications network. There would not be a governing network, network because I believe that a central government if I became the past the president of something, that would just slow down the mother church. It would impede innovation because we'd be telling people what to do. And it would impede the cultural accommodation that's necessary to reach into the nooks and crannies of society. And then lastly, there's this acceptance of diversity. And what do I mean by acceptance of diversity? Well, we have started a lot of Hope Chapels. We started some Calvary Chapels. We started a few vineyards. We started a bunch of Baptist churches. We started one Methodist church. Uh, one of our, our pastors is uh, pastoring the oldest church in Hawaii. I mean, this goes back to the missionaries who started the whole thing off. Um, you have to speak native Hawaiian and because one of the services is in Hawaiian and they also do one in English. He's a guy that I discipled early, early on and uh, just incredible things. The, but the incredible thing about that is that they're a member of the United Churches of Christ, which is one of the most liberal denominations in our country. We've been able to stay flexible and accept people kind of where they're at and where they're coming from. And, you know, they've been, they have some history with somebody else, but we discipled them to be a pastor. They want to go back there, fine with us. We're not owning anybody. Um, the model is flexible. Uh, we talked about this. It'll work in Kenya. It'll work in Antarctica. It'll work wherever. And that is just has been a really big, big, big blessing for us to allow people to take this as a target. You know, what I presented to you, the, those, that graphic that is in the, in the presentation here, and then modify it to suit your needs. That works really, really well uh, because then you can adapt to culture and whatever is going on around you. And then the last thing that I put under here is it's a place where nobody knows my name. You know, I, I don't want to be the center of anything I don't because I'll be the controller of everything, and I don't want that to happen. Two, three generations away from me, the, the pastors probably don't even know my name. They see somebody else as the person who who fostered the movement that they're a part of. That's perfectly wonderful with me. And we do go many generations deep. There's a place in New England where I know that we've gone nine generations of, and get this, 
this person found the Lord in this church, was discipled in this church, became a church planter from this church. Some guy found the Lord in that church, was discipled in that church, became a church planter from that church, and it goes nine generations deep. Now, I've met five generations of those people. I know the names of two more generations, but I've never met them. There are people in Hawaii who, um, I, if I met them on the street, I might not recognize them, and they're pastoring churches that got started from Hope Chapel. We get together every so often. That's a great thing, but uh, it's not really important to me, those kinds of things. It's important that we would network. I wish that we had done more to support people. I wish we'd had the technology that we have now. I wish we didn't have it in our DNA to kind of you know, get you started and then kind of leave you be on your own, you and the Holy Spirit. Uh, that's a good thing, but it would have been better if it's you and the Holy Spirit and us there to do a little bit more to support people than we did. But I definitely would not want there to be a central government because I do believe that that impedes progress.